Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Companies and Market Show. I'm Megan Boxall, podcast editor at the Investors Chronicle, standing in for John Human, who is on holiday. But I am joined today by Harriet Clarfelt. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Good. And Phil Oakley, who has joined us again and has written another column, which we're going to be talking about a lot this week. This is kind of where the whole idea of this podcast has come from. It's all about growth. So we're going to start with good growth, which is what your column is all about. So Phil, first of all, tell us what exactly is in your column and and why this is such an important thing to be looking at. Um, what I've tried to do with this is probably just set out one of the issues that lots of investors are wrestling with at the moment. Well, they're trying to wrestle with it all the time, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to find good companies at the right price that can grow and hopefully make themselves richer mm-hmm. over time. Now, the issue is that you've got quite a few good companies out there, but they're either not growing very much or their shares are very expensive. So this kind of issue has come to a head as well in the last sort of three, four weeks where you've had growing awareness of rising interest rates, particularly in America, and also concerns over slowing growth because of things like trade wars with China and so on, that a lot of these companies have seen their share prices hit pretty hard. So what I thought it would be good to do is to actually look at a selection of companies and look at this issue of quality versus growth versus the price that you pay and see if I could make any sort of sense of Mm, it. Yeah. So... What I've gone on to look at is I've taken a selection of companies, but then sort of taken the issue of steering the reader or the investor along the lines of, you know, what what do we mean by growth and what is good growth and what is bad growth? Mm -hmm. Because companies can grow in a good and a bad way. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to go on to an example of a company in the news this week, which is an example of bad growth. But for the moment, good growth. And actually, it was a question that one of our readers asked on on the bottom of your column, what is growth? And what do you actually look at to look at a company that's growing well? And and you have an answer for that question. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, you're looking, before I get on to what's good and what's bad, you're looking for growth in revenues, which flows through to growth in profits and growth in free cash flow, cash flows to the shareholder. And the best way to achieve that is to grow from what the company has already got, its existing assets. So selling more of its current products or services, um, launching new products and services and not spending huge amounts of money to grow so that a lot of the growth turns into profit, turns into cash, and you roll that up over the years. Mm -hmm. The other good way is where you can spend money but earn a very good return on the investment. So you might open a new factory or some new shops or invest in plant and equipment into new projects, and those projects earn good returns. So those those are good examples of good growth, referred to often as organic growth. Mm-hmm. The bad ones are where companies essentially buy growth. And generally speaking, you can't get the same return on investment by buying companies as you can from organic growth. And also the tendency is that companies can become too reliant on buying companies. So they buy companies, 
get an extra load of sales and profits, strip out a load of costs, give the picture that they're a growing business. But actually all they're doing is essentially the same thing as putting loads of money into a savings account. <laughs> and you have to make that that can only work if you can earn a good return on, on an acquisition. And history tells us that acquisitions don't tend to earn high returns on investment. And therefore that kind of growth uh, can turn bad. And if you get serial acquirers of businesses that reliant on making acquisition and also potentially bigger acquisitions time after time sometimes they get they hit the end of the road and mm-hmm. then everything then becomes exposed yeah. that the, the actually underlying business wasn't growing and we've seen that recently with conviviality yeah there's a big example of um, a company which carillion, <laughs> as, carillion yeah. as well was a was a great example of mm-hmm. that how it and obviously that is the worst case scenario both of those worst kind of case scenario but it but it um and don't get me wrong there are you know some companies are very good at doing both mm-hmm. growing organically and then bolting on mm-hmm. acquisitions which then are used as ways of growing organically mm-hmm. sort of bolt on acquisitions so it's not all bad you know you have to look at this on a and case in some industries case. it's necessary as well yeah yeah and actually, one of the companies in your in your list that you talk about is Relics, which is one that the Investors Chronicle likes. It writes about a lot. It's it's our old reliable tip of the year this year. And I mean, the share price this year hasn't been particularly reliable because, as you say, with these quality companies, they are being considered, they're being looked at differently in a time of rising interest rates and, and bond yields because if you're going to make more money, for, almost for sure, by investing in bonds... Why would you take the risk of investing in a company? And that seems to have happened to Relics in the last few years. But it's an example. It's a high-quality company which has bought bought other smaller companies, integrated them well, and doing a doing a grand job. But it's interesting in your screens that you've run this week. Yeah, could you just explain what exactly it is that you have looked at with all this this list of UK quality UK stocks? I'm essentially looking at the as a measure of valuation. I'm looking at the free cash flow yield of a company so the free cash flow per share as a percentage of the share price so the first thing that i do is i look at i go back five years and look at these companies and actually say look some of these are actually quite expensive they had low free cash flow yields but because they could grow they actually still delivered for investors and what i've actually looked at is something called the free cash flow yield on cost so I've actually looked at the last free cash flow they've reported as a percentage of the price five years ago. And mm-hmm. it, the table throws out some fantastic yeah, it's amazing. companies yeah. that have generated huge amounts of growth in cash flow, mm-hmm. free cash flow. And that free cash flow takes into account all the money spent. So particularly money spent on new assets. It doesn't include acquisitions, but it does include just essentially cash coming from from the trading business mm-hmm. and it shows that there have been some phenomenally successful businesses that despite their shares looking expensive they've actually delivered because they've grown their free cash mm-hmm. flow so rapidly so what it's saying is in simple terms don't always be put off by companies that look expensive but try and have confidence that these companies really can deliver deliver the growth yeah and actually, one that leaps out to me when I'm looking at this table is Tristel, which is one that the Investors Chronicle ha- has been sort of battling with for ages. Five years ago, the free cash rate yield was 1.5%, which, I mean, a lot of people would have thought, really? I'm not paying that much for it. Yeah. But 
it's now so it's from your calculation it's yield on cost is 20 percent. so i mean that's fantastic and everyone who invested in tristel five years ago has done very very well out of it. yeah i mean obviously we've got we've got the benefit of hindsight yeah, here obviously. but um yeah I and mean, that's what it, that's what it's showing the, the more difficult job is actually looking looking yeah. forward mm-hmm. but again so you do that as well so the the growth needed to justify the free cash flow yield at the moment and i mean some of the companies in your in your table that they're, they're going to have to grow pretty quickly i mean fever tree for example yeah. is going to have to grow i mean absurdly quickly for it to justify its current free cash flow yield yeah, I mean, without you know, without getting too nerdy about about the numbers, the the um, what what we're trying to do here is that is just try and make sense of of what is needed to kind of get to a reasonable valuation. Mm-hmm. So we're not relying on any forecasts. So we're taking what what I've sent, essentially done is I've set a threshold of a company getting to at least a five percent free cash flow yield on the price today within five years and looking at what they would have to grow their free cash flow in absolute terms and on an annualized basis to get there and i thought it was quite interesting and it throws up shares that are potentially quite interesting Mm. potentially quite cheap and ones which you know as you've just said have got quite a lot of work still to do yeah, I mean, the other one that leaps out for me is Abcam, uh, 38% growth per annum to justify its current free cash flow yield. I mean, that's extraordinary for what's actually already a, a large, well-established company as well. It's an excellent company. It's an excellent company. Um, I do like Abcam. We're... But, I mean, that is is that sustainable? Is that kind of growth realistic? It's It seems a little bit... A little bit much to me. It's it's a tough challenge on mm. what I've set it. Obviously, mm. other people might take a different view mm-hmm. and say, "Well, this is such a good company, it shouldn't trade on a five percent yield. It can be a three percent yield, mm-hmm. and therefore it doesn't have to grow as much." Yeah, and actually, if you'd said about Abcam ten years ago that it was too expensive, which is actually what we said at the Investors Chronicle when Abcam first listed in two thousand and five, we said probably probably done for now, and it's up. But this, about eight folds in but this this sort of comes back to the sort of central message of high quality businesses high quality businesses should command quite rightly high valuations you know you can't expect to buy you know a really good company at a bargain basement price you know quality you usually have to pay up for it's a question of you know what is the limit the right of, what, of what you pay yeah. up for yeah um but then interestingly in this, you've got two companies which actually don't need to grow their free cash flow at all to justify their current current price. And one of those is Relics, which, I mean, I don't think that's realistic. I think it is going to be growing over the next five, ten years. The other one is Next, which some people say may be more of a challenge for it to keep growing. Yeah, I mean, Next is Next is very interesting because, as as a lot of, uh, a lot of listeners and readers will know, this is a company that is a very good business, very well managed in a very, very difficult sector, um, but has been struggling to grow. Mm-hmm. And some might say, well, actually, that's that could be a fair assessment. At least you know something's priced in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you've got a bit of a bit of a leeway there if only everything does go everything does go downhill. Interesting because there are examples here of companies, as we've said, that are interesting investments in terms that they are growing well. But we've also got examples in the magazine this week of companies that are growing badly. And 
U Group, which had a pretty shocking announcement yesterday on Wednesday, is a prime example about example of that. So um, I'll just quickly run through what's actually happened. Um, it's uh, it's had some accounting problems and it has had to massively cut its guidance for both this current financial year and well forever its gross margins are not going to be what what it was expected because they have decided that they were perhaps being a bit optimistic about the revenues that they were expecting to book from some of its customers and it's all to do with the trade receivables and the accrued income so energy companies tend to i mean estimate what their customers are going to be using in in the future and they book that as accrued income on their balance sheet and U Group actually has quite a high proportion of accrued income on its balance sheet. It's twelve percent. It was twelve percent of its revenues at the half year stage, and, and and so that's the bit that they were estimating. But they also had quite a large proportion of invoices. So they had already invoiced their customers, but hadn't yet been paid. That was thirty one percent of their revenue. They've now come to the conclusion that some in some of those cases they are never going to be paid. So that revenue in 2018 and onwards is not going to be as high as they expected but Phil you've had a look back through the numbers the historic numbers and you think that this is something that we maybe could have spotted again we've got that old old friend hindsight with us I think you know these type of companies are always companies that you should mind your eye with you know Mm -hmm. they're, they're starting off they're small companies very small companies and this is a this is a company that has grown very rapidly grown its turnover very rapidly over the last last two or three years and these are the kind of companies that from time to time do do cause trouble um you do find that actually things that looked really good weren't as good as you thought mm-hmm. as you thought they were and there are a few things there are a few things in the numbers i mean one of the one of the checks that i always look at uh, in, in a company is looking at the the relationship between trading profit and trading cash flow. I want to see a company convert its trading profits into trading cash flow. And up until last year, there was virtually no trading cash flow in this business at all. And last year, the the trading cash flow was quite significantly below below the profits. Now, sometimes they can be good reasons for that, um, legitimate reasons that eventually work their way out and everything's fine mm-hmm. and clearly obviously with this one it, it wasn't but you could look at the, the the issue obviously with receivables which has been been brought up in this announcement um, you've seen significant increase in cash outflows from receivables um, for the last two or three years and that was offset by increases in payables so it sort of offset the cash effect but actually if you'd looked at the receivables in isolation, you might well have just sort of, mm, okay, I'll take a bit of a look at that. Um, the other thing as well is um, there's a, a sort of academic um, number or ratio called the Benish M score, which sounds a bit n- a bit nerdy. Yeah, it does. But <laughs> this is it, deep research. This is not deep research, <laughs> but it's this um, Benish did a study into how investors could detect companies that might be manipulating their earnings and he came came up with this formula that's based on eight different accounting ratios and found, had had a number and I won't get bogged down into actually what the number is but if you'd have applied this number to you 
it would have actually highlighted that there was possible manipulation of profits going on. Now, it doesn't always work. This mm-hmm. number doesn't always um, throw out um, some a company that's doing the wrong things or manipulating its profits um, because it does tend to penalise companies that are growing quickly. And obviously, companies can grow quickly and everything can be fine. Yeah. But I think the combination of that number... And then looking at the trends in cash conversion, the movement in the debtor balance, and also just taking some understanding of the type of industry that it was in. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that's what we were actually talking about yesterday when we were looking at this. Yeah. It doesn't really have that many companies you can even compare it with. It, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an energy supplier, but it doesn't own any of its own assets. It, it's, a, it's, very, it's unique in what it does on the, on the London Stock Exchange, which, yeah. which does make it hard to value and hard to assess how fast it should be growing. And, and actually, it shouldn't have been growing as fast as it said it was growing. And, and, you know, and the scope for, for cash flow moving around all, all the time in this mm. kind of business, particularly on, you know, these companies tend to buy energy in advance. Mm-hmm. They may hedge that energy. And sometimes, you know, you'll get um, sort of calls to if the, if, the, if the hedge for the energy is in or out of the money, then there are, you get movements of cash mm-hmm. moving around. So it's quite a complicated business and mm-hmm. there is scope for things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if one of those things is they're just not collecting the money that they're owed or they're estimating wrong the money that they're owed, I mean, it is going to be a problem which investors have unfortunately found to their cost but there are also examples of other companies and i mean it's not saying that they're all going to have this accounting anomaly which has happened at U group but a high proportion of trade receivables is something which can be a red flag and and when we were looking at at U group the the other couple of companies and one that you've mentioned before actually which has a very high proportion of trade receivables is fever tree the other one is Blue Prism, which is one that you are very familiar with, Harriet. So Blue Prism, fantastic growth story, 83% trade receivables, which... Which obviously does um, raise questions. I mean, as you said, there's no kind of suggestion that it'll have the same problems as you group, but um, it's certainly something worth looking into in more, in more detail. I mean, if you look at Blue Prism, um, I know we've spoken about it a lot before because it really is this this growth story. If you invested at the time of their IPO, which I think was... March 2016, you would have made a lot of money, even though the shares have fallen by quite a bit in recent weeks. Mm. I mean, why have the shares fallen in recent weeks? Part of it is, you know, we've seen this kind of sell-off of highly rated companies generally. Um, They were actually up, I think, a couple of days ago because Numis, the broker, initiated Mm. on them with a buy recommendation. And uh, it's something like a 60% increase in their share price target wasn't it, it was, yeah exactly i mean, I mean there's a lot really ambitious yeah. forecasts if you look at some of the kind of growth indicators for blue prism so i think their half year results to april showed 145 percent revenue growth which is obviously huge um i think part of the sort of positive sentiment behind blue prism is this focus on its deal count and you know it has been pretty impressive that's obviously something i think that investors are kind of looking at when they when they monitor blue prism and decide to stay decide whether or not they're going to stay um stay invested but yes, it's still loss making. There is this question around trade receivables. Has there been any sign that they're not collecting money as quickly as they need to? Not yet so far. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, given how much we are looking at revenues to see how, far, how much further it's got to go, you know, that could be that could potentially be an issue further on. Mm. I mean, in terms of, um, I mean, you mentioned U Group and how difficult it is to value it because it's kind of unique on the market. And I suppose to an extent, the same could be said of Blue Prism. 
we don't have any other um, sort of automated software specialists for back office functions listed on AIM like mm-hmm. we do Blue Prism. And there are two other um, competitors, which are often identified, I think, by brokers. So one is Automation Anywhere and the other is UiPath. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. But neither of those are listed, um, which obviously poses a problem in terms of how shareholders should value them. Um, how do they compare with their market share, those those three? So I'm honestly, I don't think there's a huge amount of evidence to show how much. I think Blue Prism obviously does have a large and broad customer base, given that so many different companies have back offices, which is what it specialises in, so sort of rules-based administrative back office functions. There's been no indication so far the growth is going to slow down in terms of revenues, but if if there is a question around that, it's certainly going to be one to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because its current valuation is it's completely dependent astronomical, on it. Astronomical, yeah. yeah. I mean, actually, I think, um, I think maybe Simon Thompson mentioned this in his column this week, but... Um, you know, Blue Prism, I think at the end of September, its shares were worth, at the beginning of September, I should say, its shares were worth 2,375p. And today they're worth around £16. So they have fallen by quite a bit. Mm. I'm not saying it's now a sort of value investment in the slightest because it's still incredibly expensive. But, um, you know, why has it fallen by that much? Mm-hmm. And is it going to be vulnerable to more falls as well? Yeah, well, I'm not sure if it's the kind of stock you want to own when the market said you should. No, it's incredibly, incredibly risky. But I think... Potentially, that's why, why people find it so interesting to mm. watch. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. Yeah, and then, then the other one, for, as you've talked about before, before is Fever Tree, which, and obviously with these companies, there is, and especially when they are early stage, fast growing companies, that they some of that growth is reliant on having this relationship with their customers, and and Fever Tree clearly has that with a lot of the pub groups. They they offer them products on credit rather than being paid up front, but that that would be true of any any pub supplier. But but the fact that Fever Tree's trade receivables are so much higher than the rest of the pub groups, that's something that you question. Yeah, I mean, I think apart from Fever Tree's ability to crack the American market, this is the <laughs> this is an issue that uh, you know I'm keeping keeping quite a close eye mm-hmm. on because the the level of trade receivables as a percentage of sales has been rising, and um, it is quite a lot higher it's probably double the level of say Britvic and AG Bar which operates slightly different slightly different obviously they're lower growth businesses slightly different ownership model and and product mix Nichols which makes Vimto that's mm. about 24 25% of sales and Fever Trees has crept up into the early 30s now um from sort of the mid 20s a couple of years ago now, this is fine, as I said before. This is fine as long as the cash is, is paid. Mm-hmm. The only thing that, you know, if you were very cautious, that wanted to be cautious on this is to say, if the amount of credit the company has to offer to generate the growth is getting bigger, then that might be a sign that it's getting harder and harder to keep, to keep the growth coming through. But one of the big advantages that Fevertree has, and I think this is an important point, is that because Fevertree doesn't own any of its production, it has cash to invest to grow, and it yeah. can invest through credit rather than assets. And at the moment, there's nothing to suggest there's any kind of bad bad debt problem. But what I would say is that clearly you can drive growth if you offer generous credit and more credit. Yeah. And that's just something that, you should keep an eye on also also the valuation yeah, as well. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it is. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to look at. Obviously, not saying that these these two companies are going to head the same way as you group, but for investors, 
it, it is it's something to watch. Uh, so yeah, after that, well, very very technical podcast, I'd say very very good analysis of uh, of some of the companies. There is obviously a lot more in the magazine this week that we haven't come on to. Apart from the results are very sparse this week. It's it's a very quiet time. But Harriet, you've written the sector focus about language. I have quick quick overview quick summary exactly we've it's about language which might sound a bit niche but um i was kind of looking at why at how companies are globalizing the fact that it's become easier than ever before to at least try to expand your your company overseas one of the potential obstacles of course is that if you want to target partners and customers in new countries quite often they speak different languages so how do you go about approaching those customers or those businesses with the right language with the right tone with the appropriate sort of cultural awareness Mm -hmm. And um, there are quite a few companies actually specialising in that. Mm. Um, everything from Google Translate, which is kind of ubiquitous, you know, we all use that all the time on holiday, to um, SDL, to um, RWS. Those are just a couple. I mean, there are a few more companies mentioned yeah. within the sector focus. And it covers such a wide range of sectors as well. It does. It's... I mean, everything from real sort of language translation specialists um, that are sort of backed by technology like SDL to Keyword Studios, which is in the video game space, but um, it provides kind of localization services as, as one of its various offerings for mm-hmm. video games companies. And the film industry as well. I really enjoyed the the analysts that you've got to to have the, the expert's view on the, on the side of this, who talks about how Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't allowed to do his own German dubbing for The Terminator because his accent was too... Was deemed to be too rural. <laughs> I know, which seems so strange. And I think he makes the point in his column that clearly localization is never simple. Yeah. Um, I think that's so funny. It is really funny. It's something, unless you're a German speaker, you probably wouldn't notice. <laughs> um, but then that's why they translate it. It's not for the non-Germans. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting interesting article. And there is obviously the cover feature this week, which has been written by Tom Dines. And it's all about nationalisation and what we can, we should be wary of if, if the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn ever do get into power, which according to the bookmakers, looks pretty likely, apparently. The most likely next Prime Minister is Jeremy Corbyn, according according to the polls. So Tom talks us through what, what we should be wary of as investors if that was, was to happen. Uh, we've also got all the other columns as normal, as well as Phil's. We've got Simon's column, Bear Ball. Chris Dillo has written a double page on, on the reasons to ignore the buy on Halloween rule and all the funds articles which they will talk about in their podcast tomorrow. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks very much for listening. John will be back next week. Sorry, Sid, what a Corbyn-led government could mean for investors. Pick it up in all good news agents. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.